big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we have several esteemed new patrons to thank. So shout out to Siobhan, Karis, Jared, Amy, and Felicia. Welcome to the team. Also, a huge shout out to Chaotica, who upgraded their pledge. If you want to be like these awesome people and get access to things like our notes, outtakes, and the occasional live stream where we read buckwild fanfiction, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. In today's episode, we are going to finally learn the answer to the question we've been asking all along, Hoomst. Just in time for you to buy our Hoomst merch at our Public store. You've all been loving the merch so far, and we're so excited about it. The link to the store is in the episode description, so check that out if you haven't already. And now, enjoy this week's episode covering only one chapter, chapter 31 of Sense and Sensibility. I'm in my new apartment, and I'm so excited to not be in my bedroom right now. I'm in my office space currently, and what you're seeing behind me are owls on the wall. Cute. They will be gone. I I am going to take them off, but uh, right now this was a nursery for the last tenants, Mm. so now... It's it's set up to be an office and a record studio, but it still has owls on the wall. I like them. They're watching. Mike thinks they're insanely creepy. I have a lot of respect for the person who's here before me, but I don't know why they thought this was cute. It's a bit disconcerting, shall we say. Who? Who? Whomst? Whomst? Well, we found out whomst, didn't we? This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about a singular chapter of a Jane Austen book, uh, that being chapter 31. Yes. 31 of Sense and Sensibility. If you're new here, I, Molly, have never read any Jane Austen sans Pride and Prejudice, or except for Pride and Prejudice until doing this podcast. I, Becca, have read many Jane Austens, including Pride and Prejudice. And if you want to listen to Molly reading Pride and Prejudice for the first time, check out season one of our podcast. But that's not what we're doing here today. No, it is just juicy, juicy sense and sensibility today. Juicy, juicy sense and sensibility. Sense and sensibility and juicy. Sense and juiceability. Juice and sense of juice and juiceability. <laughs> juice and juiceability. <laughs> Sips coffee. Listeners, those of you who are familiar with sense and sensibility might know that this is the angstiest of chapters. It's one of the angstiest chapters Austin wrote. It's juicy it is for lack of a better term the drama the drama and listeners i cried and honestly i'm in a place emotionally where i might cry again talking about it <laughs> because oh man it's just poor 
Colonel Brandon and listeners, you know that I love my boy. I love Colonel Brandon. And this part broke me just in Oh, yes. This is, this is the chapter is basically just our little foray into Colonel Brandon's tragic past. Up until this point in time, he's been this sweet, stoic gentleman who has grown in affection of the Dashwood sisters. He obviously cares for Eleanor and he obviously cares for Marianne. I think he cares for Margaret and Mrs. Dashwood as well, although he's less close. He does. Them. I mean, as far as Marianne goes, he's basically just so smitten with her. But I think this chapter actually does a good job of explaining part of why he's so smitten with her. So let's just jump into it because there's a lot to go through here. And we have a lot of Colonel Brandon to discuss. Yes. So let's get into it. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I did text Becca that I was like weeping during this chapter. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah, guys. I was like, I was at work and I was like in the middle of a really big work thing. So I was like in a tizzy and I just look over at my phone and I see like eight texts coming in from Molly and I was like, she read it. (laughs) She read it. And for those of you who are interested in Kunst, obviously, Many of you are, because many of you bought our Hoomst merch. This is the chapter where we find out Hoomst. Yes. So Hoomst to be revealed, TBR, chapter 31 or chapter 9 of volume the second. Marianne is depressed because where we left off, Willoughby had just written her this letter, given her her hair back and all of her letters and been like, I never loved you. Peace. So Marianne's depressed. She's wallowing. And Eleanor continues to just be a good and supportive sister and trying to get her to talk about it as much as possible. Marianne's feelings are just all over the place. Sometimes she's making excuses for him. Then she gets upset when she can't think of anything to excuse him because he is just a butt crack of a human being. He is such a butt crack. And also, this is really relatable because like, when someone really hurts you, but you've had like a good experience with them, you don't want to soil the good experience, but kind of they did it anyway. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. And the thing is, in that situation, like oftentimes you can separate the good experience from the bad breakup. But if they come out and say they never had feelings for you, that kind of soils that experience. So Marianne, while she's feeling her feelings, is avoiding Mrs. Jennings at all costs. Uh if she has to be around her, she just doesn't speak a word, which rude. Oh, so rude. Like, I get that she's going through it, but Mrs. Jennings has been pretty generous with them. Yeah, exactly. And she she makes a point, which is that Mrs. Jennings only has like an interest in her right now because she's a source of gossip and Mrs. Jennings loves to gossip, which is true and fair. But Eleanor thinks that Marianne has unreasonable expectations for people. She thinks that she expects that Marianne expects everyone to share all of her opinions, all of the weight that she places on the sensibilities for beautiful things and and everything. Like she just can't expect people to all be like her. And that's why Eleanor thinks that she's being really rude to Mrs. Jennings. One day, Mrs. Jennings comes in with all the best intentions, just full bubby energy, holding a letter saying that she has something that will cheer Marianne up. So, of course, Marianne thinks it's a letter from Willoughby, but it's a letter from her mother, which, of course, Mrs. Jennings would think that would cheer her up. But Marianne is like, how dare you? And she blames Mrs. Jennings. It says that 
uh, her bringing in this letter sunk the heart of Mrs. Jennings still lower in her estimation. The cruelty of Mrs. Jennings. Austin's sarcasm in this part is prime. The cruelty of Mrs. Jennings no language could have expressed. (laughs) All she did was bring in a letter. Like, I get it. It's relatable when you're expecting a text from your crush and your phone screen lights up with a notification and it's your mom. You're like, damn it. Oh, that that's the worst. That's really the worst. But that's not Mrs. Jennings fault. It's not Verizon's fault. You know, everything's Verizon's fault. But that's true. That's true. (laughs) It is certainly not anybody's fault except the guy not texting you. Right. Speaking of Austin's sarcasm at this point. I was reading this and not fully reading into the sarcasm of it. And I was kind of thinking at this point that this chapter was going to be from Marianne's perspective because it was like the cruelty of Mrs. Jennings. How dare she? Blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, Marianne's finally going to be the kind of the voice behind the chapter. No, no, she's about to leave the room and never come back. So just funny how that works out. So the letter from their mother is all about Willoughby, basically because she doesn't know yet about the letter and the hair coming back to her. So she only knew that he was like being kind of aloof and whatever. So Mrs. Jennings then goes to talk with the Middletons and the Palmers. It said that she wouldn't rest until they were able to grieve like she was grieving for Marianne because she thinks that everyone cares as much as she does about these things. And perhaps John and what's her face? Charlotte do. Lady Middleton and Mr. Palmer don't give a fuck. No, zero fucks given. So she leaves. Then Eleanor goes to write to her mom. And then there is a knock. A knock, knock, knock on the door. Whomst. Whomst. And it's Brandon, of course. Marianne at this point is the worst. She's like, what? Dare he come to us? He's, she says, a man who has nothing to do with his own time, doesn't care about intruding on the privacy of others, blah, blah, blah. I said, ma'am, he has a lot to do with his own time. He has got a lot going on. And you are being so insensitive. Well, she's just mad because he's not Willoughby. Like, that's really just the crux of it. She's just hating everyone except Eleanor and Willoughby right now. I know. I just, the fact that that beautiful young women who are smart, and talented, give the time of day to people like Willoughby and let them take over their lives like this. Ladies, do not give your time to Willoughby's in this world. And anyone can be a Willoughby. Let's just put that out there right now. I think that a lot of us assume that women can't be Willoughby's, but they can. Women can certainly be Willoughby's. I personally have experienced more men who are Willoughby's. I am also a straight woman, so that's my experience. Yeah, listen, all my gays out there, Protect your heart. It's rough out there. It's brutal out there, as Olivia Rodrigo would say. So he comes in. Marianne leaves. A pattern that we have seen a lot. Uh, He's glad to talk with Eleanor alone. I thought that this part was masterfully written. The speech patterns on this man, he is just sputtering. Like, he gets out the beginning of probably 15 different sentences in this section. Yeah, he's uh, he's so anxious to tell this story. It's such a an intense story and people in these days don't talk about their feelings. And Brandon is someone who shoves everything so far down in his body that he like barely surfaces anything he's feeling at any given point in time. So he's like pulling back the lid to try to give Marianne some peace and it is killing him. Ah. Oh, Molly's not going to be okay during this record sesh. I need to read just a, a little section of his sputtery, what he's doing here. He comes in and he says, my object, my wish, my soul wishes desiring it. I hope, I believe it is. 
is a means of giving comfort. No, I must not say comfort. Not present comfort, but conviction. Lasting conviction to your sister's mind. He's just, he's really wants to say something. And this boy has been trying to get it out for weeks. He has come in, and I realized this after reading this section, but like he has come in trying to get Eleanor alone to tell her this for so long. He's been like, every time he's come in and he's like, is there no hope? But that's, he didn't mean for himself. No, he meant for Marianne. Yeah. He was trying to protect her this whole time. Because he actually cares about her. He's a good egg. Ugh. Okay, so he comes in. He says he has some news. He wants to be useful. He wants to give lasting conviction to Marianne's mind. Eleanor says she understands what he's trying to say is that he has some proof against Willoughby. And that his telling it will be the greatest act of kindness that he could show Marianne. Now, at this part in my notes, in my book, I did write that the reason that I ship Eleanor and Brandon is because I'm bi. I don't know what I meant by that. But I think it's because I know that that Brandon is bi. I love Brandon the Bi King. Bi-king. That, is, that is something I'm totally on board with. I think now might be a a decent time in the book to unpack a little bit of why I think Brandon and Eleanor are not a perfect match. Mm-hmm. I get why people like them. Mm-hmm. I get why it comes up even in the book at some points. But I think what Austin's going for here is actually pretty intentional. And this chapter is a really good example of why they're well not so well matched. The truth is that they don't have similar experiences of love. They're two people. Love is a little different for a lot of different people. And Brandon and Eleanor get along so well. They would have a very comfortable match. They would be very content together. They're, first of all, both hopelessly into somebody else. True. Second of all, the way that Brandon experiences love is actually not so similar to Eleanor's experience, which is this calmer sort of conversational love she develops with Eric with Eric I don't know why I almost said Eric Edward yeah whereas Colonel Brandon is kind of secretly a man of passion a man of sensibility yeah I know that's a hot take listeners I know some people really think Colonel Brandon's kind of stuffy and sensible but this chapter to me says that Colonel Brandon is someone with deep passions and deep desires and deep feelings about insane love and running through the rain and all this stuff. So the truth of the matter is he's not suited to a suitable match, quote unquote. He's not suited to just picking someone who he gets along with out of convenience. Mm -hmm. That's my take on why Eleanor and Brandon actually work better as friends than they do as lovers. I respect people who disagree with me here, but that's why I feel, I feel like that's what Austin's trying to get at through this story. Does that make sense? No, it does. And and I don't disagree with you. I think part of why I ship them, which has nothing to do with whether I think they would actually be a good match, just say that about shipping culture, is that like, maybe this is not true for all people who are attracted to multiple genders. But as someone who is, I do have a harder time in my own brain distinguishing platonic affection and romantic affection. Like, I know the difference. But I think that when I'm reading their relationship, I'm like getting those like, is this butterflies? Is it not? I certainly don't want to minimize your experience as a member of the queer community. I will say that many straight people also experience a difficulty differentiating between platonic love 
and romantic love. It's not, you know, straight people don't get a lightning bolt. <laughs> They're like that one. But <laughs> I, as someone who um, has a lot of platonic intimate friendships with straight men, I really advocate for the belief that, you know, people who could be attracted to each other and have very intimate relationships can have platonic intimate relationships. And I think they can be extraordinarily important. Yes. And I think that the more I read Colonel Brandon and Eleanor's relationship, the more I do just want them to be friends. And like, and that makes me happy too. Um, I'm, I was more thinking about like, why did I think this before? And like, I, I just want to be so clear. You're not crazy. At no, all. Yeah. This is like, Austin is being very intentional and saying, hey, why don't these two get together? Why don't they do it? She's trying to throw us off the scent. And you would not be the first person to think that Colonel Brandon and Eleanor would make an excellent match. They are, by all normal measures, perfect for each other. Yeah. They're both smart, kind, sensible. They clearly get along really well. They have really similar notions of how to like live a good life. Like there's a lot of value across. Like they are really well matched, except for things like chemistry and love and passion like that's really the crux of the matter is that like they're kind of perfect for each other but they don't want to be like yeah you know yeah oh yeah you're right you're right and I like that I I like it too I think it's a uh, very telling in the story and like I am happy to discuss with any of our listeners if they disagree with me but that's like this chapter really to me says why Colonel Brandon would not be a good match for Eleanor So let's get on to why in the actual specifics. Yes. (laughs) Let's get into why. So he decides to tell her the whole story. He starts first at where he left Barton in October. He's like, do you remember when I left Barton? And he's like, oh, wait, no, I have to go back farther. I'm an awkward narrator. Let me give you some more explanation. He says he can have no temptation to be diffuse in this situation, which means in talking about what he's about to talk about. He doesn't want to take up too much time. He doesn't want to spread out his story because it is painful for him. Poor baby boy. He does kind of spread it out anyway, but I digress. (laughs) Six pages long. Yep. So he starts out by saying she's probably forgotten this, but does she remember a conversation they had at a party one night when he brought up a lady he'd once known who reminds him of Marianne? Now we remember because we've been talking about it since then. Whomst. Whomst, obviously. And Eleanor remembers it, too. Of course she does. Of course she does. Because she's been thinking about it the whole time, too. But he gives a little smile because he's like, oh, like, she remembers we're friends. Like, his little self-esteem goes up. So here's his story. This lady, Eliza, was one of his nearest relations. And he grew up with her under his father's guardianship. And they were in love. He was obsessed with her. It was like Marianne and Willoughby levels of love oh yeah this was a deep passionate affair for their whole lives too like oh yes like from childhood like love from childhood like the wonder years so when she was 17 he says she gets married to his brother because her fortune was large and our family estate much encumbered meaning debt hello what is it what is it the economics of dating in jane austen grand the sting so his brother though did not love her and she was miserable but then he's like wait 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 i have to go back farther because 
this is confusing. He's like really bad at telling the story. So, oh yeah, yeah. Famously, like there are scholars who talk about how bad Colonel Brandon is at telling the story. Oh my god, I love it. We're gonna have to read some of their essays. <laughs> so he goes back again. He and Eliza were planning to elope in Scotland. Gretna Green. Hell yeah, Lydia yeah, Bennett. Yeah. But her maid betrayed them, and he was banished from the house, and she was locked up and then married to his brother. Forcibly married to his brother. Forcibly. Who does not love her, and she didn't love him. And Brandon says if she'd been happy in her marriage, he would have gotten over it and been like, okay, she's happy. Like, I'll get over my own heartbreak because he genuinely cares about how other people feel. Oh, yeah. There's something so unbelievably selfless about the way Brandon loves. It's almost a problem for him. It is a problem. Not almost. It's a huge problem for him. He just loves people. Like when he loves, he's like, I don't need to have anything in return. It is enough for me to know that that person is okay. Oh Oh my God. Colonel Brandon is everyone's dream. Girl, get you a Colonel Brandon. Get you a Colonel Brandon. Of any gender, but any person listening to this podcast looking for love, screw the Willoughby's, but get on the Brandons. The Brandons are where it's at. Marry them right away. So his brother is mean to her and uh, question mark abusive and she becomes incredibly depressed. I think the the implication there is if even if he wasn't physically abusive, there was it was a relationship of deep emotional abuse and torment. Yeah, there was a quote that I had questions about. Happy had it been if she had not lived to overcome those regrets, which the remembrance of me occasioned. Basically, she could have borne it if she wasn't still regretting the lost love. Okay. I think that the phrasing of it confused me because I thought that he was saying like, if she had died earlier, it would have been happier. But that's probably not what he's saying. I mean. It would have been, but. It probably would have been. Yeah. And then he says, but can we wonder that with such a husband to provoke inconstancy and without a friend to advise or restrain her, she should fall? And that is such a, a modern sentiment. Like, yes, Colonel Brandon, It's not her fault. She was put into a really bad situation. And I just love that he, for once in the 1800s, did not blame her for what happened. No, he's so understanding of the path she goes down, which is very rare in this time period. Yeah. And he blames himself for it a little bit because he thinks that if he had not left England, she might have been okay. But he he left because he thought that would help both of them move past it. So he's shocked when she he finds out that she's married to his brother, but his shock cannot be compared to the shock that he felt when he heard two years later that she was divorced, which at first I was like, yes, she's divorced. But then I was like, I guess that's bad for her reputation. Yeah, and also her financial state. Her financial state. It's bad for everything in society. Because he, his brother inherited or like takes her money when they get married, is that? Yeah, so what happened basically is that Fun quirk of this time period and generations before and like a century after when women got married, they ceased to exist as legal persons. So remember, she was super rich when she walked into this marriage and their estate was encumbered by debt. So what happened is that he was going to inherit the estate. So they married her to him to fix the estate and he got all of her dowry, which was giant, and used the dowry to pay off his own debts. So when she came into the relationship, all the money she had, all the possessions she had became his. She ceased to exist as a legal entity. So like, she is his property. That's how marriage used to work. That's why so many feminists are so opposed to marriage. 
I would argue that the system has reformed in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now women do exist as uh, legal persons and it's okay to be married nowadays. But like the institution itself is based in this really horrific erasure of women. Yeah. So all your possessions go to your husband. That's why women collect jewelry partially because it was their only source of like individual wealth. And there is like a dowager put aside for like when your husband dies, but like you don't immediately get all the stuff you put into the marriage back. If you're a woman, you get an allowance. Oh, basically a spousal support. They talked about the allowance in this next part. And I was going to ask if that was like her, her divorce allowance or, but that, or is that just the allowance that she gets for being married? No, she, she would get like a divorce allowance. Got it. So we're going to talk about that in a second, but that makes a lot of sense. Cause I was like, wait, isn't her family rich? No, 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 no. She wouldn't get any of that back. Okay. So at this point in the story, which we've just done too. Brandon gets up and paces around for a while. He's like, I gotta collect myself. Eleanor is clearly distressed. So he comes, he kisses her hand, BFFs. Then he continues on his story. Three years after the divorce, Brandon returns to London, but he can't find her. He's looking for her. He can't trace her past her first, quote, seducer. So we get an idea of the life that she has fallen into since the divorce. She gets this legal allowance, but at some point she signed it over to someone else. So... My take on that was that the money has been going to someone else to pay off some debt. I think that's accurate. Okay. Six months in, after Brandon is in London, he's looking for her for six months, he goes to visit a former servant of his in a sponging house, which is a house usually maintained by a bailiff for keeping debtors for a day to afford opportunity to come to terms with their creditors or for more than a day. I don't know why the definition is for a day, but anyway, like they're hanging out there and he finds her there. Also shouts to our king for going and finding her when she's been ripped to shreds. Yeah, this has like major, like in my mind, I'm picturing the same thing of like Darcy going around London, except less angry and more like desperate. Where's my love? The difference is that like Lydia is on the brink of falling Mm -hmm. and this Eliza has fallen. And so he's like scraping the bottom of of London and and I was also like I did go and listen to Les Mis after reading this chapter. It's very Fantine and yeah. Jean Valjean. That is the image. I dreamed a dream. Also, like hot take. I think that Anne Hathaway's version of a dream, I dreamed a dream is better than honestly like any other version. Like not necessarily for vocal ability. I know Becca just twitched when I said that. I know it's a hot take. I actually think she does a really wonderful job with the song, and I think it comes. So part of it is that it comes at a different part in the story Mm. than it does in other versions. Because at that point in time, she's lost everything where usually it's like she's lost her job. Gotcha. Okay, okay, okay. So that makes sense. I saw the play like a really long time ago, so I don't remember it as well as I also saw the movie a long time ago. I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, but listening to it. And then, like, also watching the the thing. So, like, what I'm picturing is her version of I Dreamed a Dream, but Eliza, um, because she is, like, at this cracking point. And I think that the what Anne Hathaway does with it is so beautiful because she really, in her case, it is not a power ballad. It is, like, she is falling apart. And so that's why I really like that version. Lame is purists, you can come for me, but I... Love Anne Hathaway. I'm personally super partial to the Leah Salonga version of it. Um, I I happen to think the best cast of Les Mis is the 25th anniversary concert cast, minus Nick Jonas. But everybody else in that is so perfect. Nick Jonas? He plays Marius. What? I know. But 
So Alfie Bo plays Jean Valjean and Norm Lewis plays Javert and they're so good. I could cry. I, I'm not going into this right now. Yes, I'm sorry to bring up Les Mis, but it did feel appropriate because it's also around, is it around the same time period? Question mark? Yeah, actually it would be around the same time period. This is That's a few decades later, I think. When does Les Mis take place? Oh my God, it's like five years later. I thought it felt very similar in vibe. And so I was like really picturing that. It's like 10 years later, actually, because yeah, yep, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, it is that that vibe for sure. And it's interesting because this is a Jane Austen novel. Right. This is a Jane Austen novel. And I was telling my mom about it after I finished this. I was like, mom, you're never going to guess what just happened. And she was like, Jane Austen wrote that? Yes. Yes. She does. She doesn't just write like petty tea parties. Right. She writes real shit. Like I wanted to read this description of Eliza because it did make me cry. My notes, our, our patrons will see. I just like all caps. No. So he finds her and he says, so altered, so faded, worn down by acute suffering of every kind. Hardly could I believe the melancholy and sickly figure before me to be the remains of the lovely, blooming, healthful girl on whom I had once doted. Molly's tearing up, guys. I, am. I think this is the first time I've seen Molly cry on the pod. Yeah, so it's a lot. It's a lot. So she has consumption and she's in the last stages of her life. And he says, quote, Life could do nothing for her beyond giving time for a better preparation for death. And that was given. Ah! She is dying. And he like he doesn't even think that it's worth it at this point to like try to keep her alive. So he just takes her and gives her a comfortable place to die. And he stays with her. It's not that he doesn't think it's worth it to keep her alive. It's that like it would be harmful. He can't. Yeah. Well, he can't. One and two, like that's no life for her. Which brings it back to him like, genuinely caring about her. He doesn't have any selfish motives in this. He's like, this is no life for you. And that is like the purest form of love. And that's how Colonel Brandon loses his first love. It's devastating. I cried. I truly cried. And the chapter's not over yet. It gets Ugh! worse. So I, who shake it off. Anyway, he stays with her until she dies. She's dead. She's gone. He says, but why am I telling you all this, Eleanor? Because Molly's crying, guys. Because she left him her only daughter. Yes. Yes. Her daughter from the first man that she slept with after her divorce, little Eliza. This daughter that everyone thinks is Colonel Brandon's love child. Like that he and he knows that everyone thinks that, but he still takes, takes care, care of her, her anyway. Yeah. And he doesn't care what people think. Nope. So, oh, so he's got little Eliza. He sends her away to school because at this time he has no family because fuck his dad, fuck his brother. And he's got no home because he's been banished from his estate. Then his brother dies five years ago at this point. Thank goodness, because his brother sucks. So she comes to visit Delaford very frequently now that he now that Delaford is his. And he and I just like I wrote down this quote because it was just the way that he said it. He said, I am well aware that I have in general been suspected of a much nearer connection with her. Like just what I was saying, like he doesn't care that people think that that's his daughter. He wishes it was, you know. No, he's taking care of her as if she is his illegitimate child, but he has never been a man to break in any sort of honor. He just really loved her mother and has decided that she is now his family. And it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. 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 I love Colonel Brandon. I love Colonel Brandon oh. so much. Okay, so at this point, three years ago to the day, 
not to the day, but, you know, three years ago, Eliza gets moved to be under the care of a respectable woman who has a few other girls in her care around the same age and in the same situation. But then last February, Eliza disappears. Brandon had allowed her to go on a little trip with her friend to Bath to visit her sick father. Sick father is confined to his house and Eliza and her friend are like tromping about the streets having a grand old time. They're kiddying it up. They are kiddying it up. Which like Bath, Brighton, the two towns that are like, Spring break in Cancun. Yeah. So they are there and the dad doesn't know anything. Like Brandon's like, where's my daughter? And he's like, I don't know. Like they were visiting, but I was in the house. I'm sick. And they disappeared. Uh, I don't know what happened to the other friend, but Eliza just straight up off the face of the earth doesn't come back. For eight months, Brandon looks for her. I did not catch on. I just want to say I did not catch on to the number of months until later. So he looks for her for eight months. We'll get back to those eight months. We'll get back to those eight months. At this point, Eleanor jumps to a conclusion that I thought was a little bit wild, but she goes, could it be? Could Willoughby? And I was like, what? But. Oh, but. (laughs) Because he's telling this story for a reason, right, listeners? Right. So eight months goes by. He's at Barton. He gets the note in October. We're back in October at Barton. He leaves for London that very morning. We don't know what that says, the note. Little did Mr. Willoughby imagine when his look censured me for incivility and breaking up the party that I was called away to the relief of one whom he had made poor and miserable. Yep. (sighs) So he gets the letter. He goes. He wonders if Willoughby had known that it was from Eliza. Would he have done anything different in what he was his behavior or anything? But he thinks probably not since he had already done that, which no man with a heart could have done. Left a pregnant girl with promises to return and then never coming back. Okay, we need a record scratch and then another record scratch and then just what? What do we need here? We need like. A bomb going off, maybe like a maybe not that because that'll hurt our listeners' ears. You're right. You're right. Um, like um, just a record scratch, glass breaking. Yeah, we need like shatter. A woman scream. Like we need like sounds of fire. Like we have a full blown mention of sex in a Jane Austen novel. Uh huh. Willoughby knocked up Colonel Brandon's ward. His daughter ish she is young she's like what how old is she 14 yeah like 15 um what we learn at this point is that willoughby knocked her up in bath left not eight months later started wooing marianne and just never went back to her like he just yeah he just disappeared he like used her abused her lost her yeah and went to Find another hot teenager. Yeah. Disgusting. We do not stand. Fuck Willoughby. Fuck Willoughby. I want to commend you for never trusting him. I and never also trusted him. for clocking that W. That W. Someone wronged our girl. Someone with a W last name wronged Jane Austen. Yeah. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. 
The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. So at this point, Brandon says he's been trying to tell Eleanor this for weeks. He's been trying to go to her and be like, oh, is it too late? Because like, how do you tell someone who's like engaged to Willoughby? Right. This shit. So when he found out that they were not engaged, he was like, okay, now's the chance. Like, I'll make her feel better about it. She dodged a bullet. And oh boy. Yeah, she needs to hear this. She truly does. I know that like Marianne's probably going to be, she's probably going to be like, I don't believe you. Or like, really sad to know that like her love is such a terrible 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 human being but whatever she needs to hear so he says he hopes this news will make her feel better and that like she won't be disgraced in the same way Eliza was like that her that she can feel good about her life knowing that she is not going to fall that way but can she still be disgraced though because we were talking about her letters and stuff like, if anyone were, were to see those, they would think that they were doing the same thing. We're going to get to that in the study question. Okay, great. We'll okay, okay. That. Okay, great. Put a pin in Sorry, it. Sorry. Listeners, this is a podcast, but I just gave Molly a significant look. She really did. I Sometimes there's, like, long pauses, and I don't want to cut them because I I remember the looks that you gave me, but I'm like, it's an audio <laughs> medium. So... Colonel Brandon hopes that Eleanor doesn't think he intended to make himself look better in comparison, but it did not seem that way at all. And like, that's the thing is that like, he never seems like he has any ulterior motives. And I just love the way he's written. Like, he just seems genuinely good. And Eleanor says, no, 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 no. don't worry. I totally got you. This is going to make it much easier for Marianne to get over this, to move past it. She can stop trying to acquit him now. I love that word. She asks then if Brandon has seen Willoughby, and he says one meeting was unavoidable. Because he challenged him to a duel? Question mark? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why that's so funny to me, but I just can't picture Colonel Brandon. Oh, it's fucking... Men are so stupid. They're so stupid. Men are so stupid. Sorry. I love our listeners who are men. I don't think you're stupid, but like... 
Dueling. Dueling. Are we serious? Dueling. Dueling. <laughs> Eleanor at this point, I loved this quote. Eleanor sighed over the fancied necessity of this, but to a man in a shoulder, she presumed not to censure it. Dueling? She's like, really? Like, dueling? Really? Dueling? But she doesn't say anything. She's like, ugh, this is just all he knows how to do. He's a soldier. She's just like, ah, oh, this is how men work through things. Like, whatever. Like, <laughs> no, don't use violence. But I don't understand. So they dueled, but neither of them got hurt. Did I don't remember how the duels were. <sighs> All right, let's uh, see if I... I don't want to get sued by Lin-Manuel Miranda, but most disputes died and no one shoots. Right, so they come together with their guns and then they talk about it while pointing at each other? Is that... No, you aim the pistol at the sky. Oh. And both of you shoot up and then the duel's over. So what if you don't? What, can you, like, at the last minute shoot at them? You get one shot in a duel. Oh. So, I mean, if you're dueling with pistols. Right. Which you don't have to be. You can duel with swords or knives or whatever. I'm not, I don't pretend to be an expert on dueling. Yeah, I only know the song. And also they did a duel in Bridgerton where no one got hurt, right? Well, they. I don't think they even dueled at that point. Did they? Oh, yeah, they did because she she went between them and she they almost shot her. Right. <laughs> Anyway, dueling is stupid. Dueling is super stupid, but you only get one shot and like you can be a man of honor and just like aim your pistol at the sky. And then like if you both do that, then no one dies. But if one of you does that and the other one shoots, then you get someone dying or you can just shoot at each other and sort of injure each other or kill each other or whatever. But you can just aim up. So my guess is that both Brandon and Willoughby just shot at the sky. So I hope that in the movie... We get to see this because, again, I don't know who plays Willoughby, but... I'm just going to go ahead and say this doesn't happen in the movie. Damn it. I know. I'm sorry. Well, okay. Here's how I would have it. I know that Willoughby... I know that Hugh Grant plays Eddie, but in a similar way to how I thought Colin Firth played everyone in Pride and Prejudice, I kind of have been filling Hugh Grant into every role that I don't know who it is. Honestly, Hugh Grant wouldn't be a bad cast for Willoughby either. He'd just be a different cast. Yes. So I'm picturing Willoughby and Alan Rickman in their full, like, garb being absolute, like, just not knowing how to do this and being like, I challenge you to a duel. And then standing there like, um... I mean, Brandon's an army man. Brandon knows how to duel. No, I know, but I but I can't picture Alan Rickman doing it because he's like a sweet boy. Expoliamus. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Ooh, okay, okay. So that happens. Then he tells Eleanor that Eliza and the baby had been removed to the countryside. This is actually where I realized that Willoughby had knocked her up. It, it took me a while. Is this where you texted yes, me? Yes, this is where I texted you because also like the way that it's revealed, I mean, again, there was the eight months hint. He said that he made her really wretched, but they didn't actually necessarily say that she had a baby until Eleanor asks if she's in town. And he says, no, as soon as she recovered from her lying in, for I found her near her delivery, I removed her and her child into the country and there she remains. I was like, record scratch there too. (laughs) Yeah, that's where for me, the glass shattered and the record scratched. But I think that like it was definitely earlier implied. So wait, wait, we need like a Twilight Zone sort of vibe underneath. Like Molly, like we're having the realization that Eliza was pregnant. And had a baby. The baby. By Willoughby. This child had a child. So he was, she was like pregnant while Willoughby was out there macking on Marianne. What a dick. Dick. Yo, fuck Willoughby. He makes Fanny look gentle by comparison. Yeah, because all she does is be annoying and whiny. Well, she did like take all their money away from them. That's true. And that's kick true. them out of their house. 
Fanny still sucks. Fuck Fanny too. Yes. Sense and Sensibility villains are like next level villains in Austin works. This is definitely, I mean, again, I've only read Pride and Prejudice, but so far this is my favorite book. Anyway, that is the end of those chapters because then Brandon leaves and Eleanor is feeling really grateful for him and also just like feeling really bad for him and just like hard same Eleanor yeah we we are all Eleanor in this moment like he leaves and we're like uh uh-huh that brings us to Becca's study questions for this part so first of all we now know whomst we finally know whomst this has been one of the biggest questions from the book so far so let's start with Brandon's love story. We touched on this when I was discussing the Eleanor and Brandon friendship slash quasi people think it's a romance. What do you learn about Brandon based on this love story? I think the biggest thing that we've already talked about a little bit, but that I just think is the most important thing is that when he loves, which he has a lot of love to give our boy, he cares so much more about the other person than he cares about himself. Like he is so selfless and it's not an ingenuine thing. Like I think that we worried that like with Jane Bennett, we we worried at, at times that it was like just because that's like a part of her personality or at least I sometimes worried. I was like, Jane, come on, care about yourself a little bit. Like, you know that you should. No, Brandon should certainly care about himself a little bit more than he does. He is not very self-protective. He should, but also it doesn't feel like it's, something that I think that in Jane's case I think it's something she's proud of for herself like she knows that she is this person I think I think that Brandon like feels himself doing this like oh my god I don't know how I'm back here but somehow I'm here doing it yeah can't not yeah but he really just cares so much about other people um his friends he cares about Eleanor he cares about the whole family uh but he really cares about Marianne and he really cares about Eliza and and also little Eliza. So I what I also take from this story is that first of all Brandon is a man controlled by his passions. He loves so deeply. Like so deeply. He really feels things. Also Brandon is not a man in control of who he loves at all. No, cuz he's made the bad choice. Yeah, he kind of shoves shit down and he you know, he's in control of it as far as he like can tolerate his life around whatever happens, but he he feels these things. He pines so hard. And also Brandon, you know, from the beginning of the story, we learned that he was really stuffy and sort of repressed and an army man. And the thing about Brandon is also that he's got this thing for like really passionate Spitfire ladies. Like he he sees something really wonderful in these women who are very sure of themselves and very counter to their society's norms. Like beautiful young women who say, fuck you, I will feel how I want to feel. And I I think that tells you something about how he wishes he could be a little bit more. Oh, Molly's going to cry again. (laughs) I just, I think Colonel Brandon is the most relatable character, the most human character that we've had so far in Austin. Like, We've talked a lot about how Eleanor is very human and she's a three-dimensional character and all of these things, like she's a mess inside and trying to hold it together and all of this stuff. But I think that Brandon and has the fullest range of emotions that we've seen and everything that you just said, like I relate to him. I just relate to him so much. And I think Brandon certainly has the most tragic backstory of anyone we've seen. Mm-hmm. And he handles it and he's like going about his life and trying his hardest and that's all that we can ever do. And like, I think- that especially now during the last couple of years have been a hard time for a lot of people. And I think that he's just trying his best. And that's why I think that he's so relatable. Oh, we love Colonel Brandon. Really, really do. Okay. 
Next question I have is about Colonel Brandon's brother. What do we learn about how Colonel Brandon is treated by his family and about his brother? Well, shoot. I mean, his family kicked him out. They were like, you tried to elope with this girl like your brother's older because the oldest has to marry the I mean for the families the family to get the money it has to be the oldest person right is that I don't know hello the economics of dating in Jane Austen once again we have talked so much about how the economics of dating in Jane Austen affects women we have not talked about how it affects men as much Mm -hmm. we've talked about it a little bit we touched on it with Wickham Mm -hmm. but we have not talked about second-born men. Yeah. Which is something that Austin shoves in our faces with this story very, very strongly. Yes, let's talk about it because I am confused. Great. So um, as we've learned, every family wants an heir. Every family wants a guy to inherit the estate so that they can keep the wealth in the family, uh, keep it growing, pass it down through generations. And obviously women are most often cut out of those estates. So we have a son in this story. So obviously the Colonel Brandon's brother inherits Stelford and all of the debts and assets that come with it. But what we didn't talk about is if you have two sons, the second one doesn't inherit the estate. He has money. He has an income. But you see second sons and third sons do things like pursue the church or pursue uh, the army or pursue a role as a lawyer or marry into greater wealth Mm -hmm. somewhere else. But Second sons do not get that sort of place in society that first sons get, where they get to inherit the estate. They're second in line. I mean, they will inherit if, like Colonel Brandon, the brother dies, but they don't They don't get that immediate economic situation. Right. So you have Brandon in love with this girl. And like, if he had been the one to inherit the estate initially, it would have been so easy. They could have just married him to her. And that would have been fine. But because he's a second son, he doesn't get that benefit. He doesn't get that sort of freedom. Because the estate has all these debts and the older son was like, it's my my right to marry this girl because she's got the money that's going to pay off the debts. And if you take that option away from me, like he has to go find his own wife. It was like, just like simple. She's just there. And like she had so much money. Like, yeah, it's hard to find marriageable women who are that wealthy, whose families will just give you their daughter. Right. Because she, And she grew up with them. Like, he, she's part of their family, basically. Yeah. And most families of wealth are going to want their daughters to marry into men with wealth. And while Colonel Brandon's family has a lot of wealth, they also have a lot of debt. So that's a risk. You know what I mean? It's a financial proposition. And her parents are dead, right? Like, at this point, because she grew up with them. You know, I, I can't pretend to remember exactly what happened with Eliza's parents. It's not totally relevant to the story yeah well the vibe that I got is that they're dead so she already has all this money like to her name and she grew up under. well she would have had the money anyway because it's a dowry right 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 right. oh man this story is a perfect encapsulation of why tying money to romance in this time period was so cruel Mm -hmm. both to the women because what happens to Eliza is devastating so sad but also to Brandon because his story is really sad and he loses out just because he was born second that that unfortunate truth and the ironic thing is he is the one who inherited the entire estate in the end yeah oh my god oh my god and you might remember the whole thing's still 
crowded with debt, as we remember from uh, Mrs. Jennings talking about it earlier on. Because his brother did a bad job. Exactly. And he like squandered Eliza's fortune. All for nothing. This poor girl. Yeah. She had to go through all of this and the estate still went to Brandon and still had debt. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. Yep. It's all so devastating. It's a good example of how a system built to oppress women also oppresses men. Yeah. All right. How does this story change the dynamics of the book and just Austin's writings in general? We've entered into a part of society that I think we haven't touched on yet. We saw Lydia in London like being debaucherous, but we haven't we have not seen the people who are at the end of their rope in the way that we are now seeing that Eliza was at the end of her rope and just existing to survive. So we're seeing that, first of all, there's like a more well-rounded world, full worldview, as opposed to just the wealthy and the slightly less wealthy who complain about being poor, but but who are not. Willoughby, well, we'll get to him. And I think it just adds a level of the stakes are higher. The stakes are higher for everyone. The stakes are higher for Marianne, even though she like dodged this bullet. In retrospect, her stakes are higher. Like she could have been destroyed by this man. In fact, like we don't know what happened at Alanum, and we've been hinting at that for a while. And the stakes are still kind of high because if girl went and got herself knocked up, then that's a whole other story. And now I'm afraid for her. I mean, the story has is different. Like I said earlier, I went into my mom's room after I finished this chapter and I was like, you're never going to guess what Willoughby did. You're never going to guess whomst. <laughs> and she was like, what? And I told her the whole story and she was like, Jane Austen wrote that? Yeah. So the whole book, I've been pointing out to you when the sex exists in the book. And guiding you to those places. But you could have thought I was crazy or overreading it. And this is the first time where I'm like, no, we know Jane Austen knows what's going on here. Yeah. That is how we know. She she came out and said it. Right. She came out and said the sex is happening. And not only that, you are totally correct that we have seen mostly the upper classes here. And the stakes don't feel high, but they actually are. And this chapter is one piece of why. First of all, we're seeing real poor people for the first time in a debtor's house finding a prostitute dying of consumption Mm -hmm. who used to be a high society woman. And the only thing that changed that is she wanted to get out of a shitty marriage. Oh, my God. That's the risks that these women are living in society with. It makes Mrs. Bennett feel a lot less crazy. Yeah. And Austin constantly is touted by people as being sort of prissy and beating around the bush and all this. But no. Jane Austen is writing about sex. Jane Austen is writing about these transgressions and how they affect women and men for that matter. Mm-hmm. It, it's a little piece of like her giving you, yes, you are right. I am actually talking about people having sex behind closed doors in these books. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's true that I feel like we, we talk on the show about sex a lot. But it does often feel like a reach. A lot of people talk all the time about how Jane Austen is quite chaste. And, you know, for the most part, like her books are pretty chaste, Mm -hmm. like comparatively. But underneath the surface of that chaste exterior is this undercurrent of sexual tension and sexual deviance that runs through all of her books. So now she is giving she's pulling back the cover just a little bit for you to see what's actually at stake for these women if they ruin their reputations, if they marry poorly, or if they marry well and the guy just turns out to be a dick. 
Yeah, we also haven't seen, we've seen a lot of relationships where the man is not into the woman. Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. Well, we think he is. I think he is. That's you know. Mr. Palmer and Charlotte. Mr. Palmer and Charlotte, though, like we've seen that in this. And then now we're seeing a relationship where the man was actively, at least emotionally abusive to the point where she needed to get out of there. Like she got divorced and good for her. But like, I know ultimately it was her downfall, but like good for her because she was in an unhappy marriage. It just sucks that the society is in such a place that then that led to her having to fall in that way, like get consumption. Totally. All right. So next question. Fuck Willoughby. Uh, giving you a quick minute to just rant about Willoughby. Go. First of all, like I wanted to complain about him complaining about his level of wealth because, sir, you will have an estate waiting for you. Shut up. Like as soon as your witchy aunt dies, you're going to be fine. So like calm down, first of all. Second of all, the fact that this is a child. He has had a child with a child because Brandon is not that much older than Willoughby. Like, maybe 10 years? Nah. Mm. Mm. Fathering his grandchild? No. Super, super weird. Um, So that's gross. And now he's, like, on to the next. Marianne is how old? 17? That's, like, a normal age. But, like, still, it's just gross. And the fact that, like, we don't know. Like, we know that he, according to Brandon, left Eliza with promises to return. And then he just dipped out. And like, he might not know that she was pregnant, but still you don't just dip out and ghost like he ghosted Marianne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it also is really telling that you started using the language of like child and predator again, because we talked about this early on because Brandon is so much older than Marianne in a way that's like a little, mm. mm-hmm. but again, you see Brandon really caring and respecting the choices of the women in his life. Mm -hmm. And Willoughby is manipulative and taking advantage of young women for his own sexual deviance. We talked about this. Yes, we did. It makes a difference. Yeah, we compared Brandon and Marianne to Wickham and Lydia. Yes. And now we can compare them to Willoughby and Marianne. It's that he doesn't make a move. Yeah. And it's also that he um, sees her as like an adult and isn't lying to her and he's being honest with her and respectful. Like those things matter in these circumstances. Age differences can be okay where both partners are very respectful of the other person and take the other person's adulthood seriously. Mm -hmm. But what you see now with Willoughby is that he is manipulative and he is squandering the good faith of these young women. And using them because he doesn't think that they are full human beings. Like, he's using them for his own personal pleasure and whatever, and then ditching them on the side of the road. Yo, fuck Willoughby. Fuck Willoughby. All right, uh, last question before the standbys. What do these transgressions mean for Marianne, exactly? Well, she dodged a bullet, potentially. But like I just said, we don't know what went on in Alanum. We can't say that she's not going to end up pregnant. I, I would have thought that was a stretch for Austin. That might be taking it too far in terms of um, the drama that we can handle in this book. The drama. The drama. But I also now would not put it past her. So, like, that's possible. Like, Marianne could end up with child. Um, I think the main thing that it means, though, is that now... I mean, she should, it should make her feel better. It should make her be like, oh, he goes around and does this. That's not someone I want to be associated with. I think how it's going to make her feel is like, 
oh, I'm not special. He never loved me. Why did he make me feel that way? Like, she's going to, just because if I was her, I would feel really hurt. Oh, it's terrible. So one thing I think it does is it make it, it should make Marion question her judgment of people and what's important. Oh, yeah, because she thought she has a good judge of character. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he, Willoughby is so handsome and he loves poetry and he is romantic and passionate and all these things that made him and Marianne so compatible. But I mean, it's a farce because Marianne was chasing this thing that's a lie because Willoughby's shit. Remember when he gave her a horse named Queen Mab? Oh, yeah. And we talked about that at the time, how gross and weird they were being. And Marianne was talking about how she needs someone who likes all the same literature as her and feels the same way about love as she does. And I don't want to fault Marianne for all of that because I am so a fan of it being okay to be romantic. But the lack of care in which she put other aspects of a person she should fall for did not do her well here. So that's one thing. Another thing is, again, the sex is explicit in the book now, and we do have the Alan M. Court scene, mm-hmm. and we have the level of intimacy between Willoughby and Marianne. It's not clear at this point in the book what that means. We do know Willoughby was willing to do those things with a woman who was at least of a social standing where he shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Marianne's poor at this point for the wealthier classes. She's very vulnerable to this sort of situation. So it's very panic inducing for someone like Eleanor to know that her sister was in the hands of this guy alone with this guy and in his house. In his house. And then he disappeared. And because he's doing this with poor women like Eliza, who you know, has her mom is dead and she's like in a house with other... She's living on Brandon's goodwill. And then he just dipped out without waiting to see what happened. And he tried to do that with Marianne by dipping out to London. And then there she is. Granted, Marianne is certainly of a higher social standing, Mm -hmm. like even without the money. But she is vulnerable. She is living off of somebody's goodwill right now. Right. And she's a beautiful, young, impressionable girl. Like there's just a lot of danger there. And... You know, it's not helped by how much Marion felt. Obviously, this guy and I have something that's permanent. And was writing to him these letters and everything. Yeah. So there's a certain lack of care for impropriety. Now, as I said, it's not clear that that's what happened. But it is certainly a fair reading of what has happened so far. And the fact that it is a fair reading puts Marion in so much danger. Yeah. I also wanted to read this quote because we were talking about Marianne's you know what she looks for in a person and all of this and they brought it up in this chapter which you know makes me think that they're hinting at the fact that we're gonna have to see Marianne become more sensible Eleanor says or Eleanor thinks Eleanor had not needed this to be assured of the injustice to which her sister was often led in her opinion of others by the irritable refinement of her own mind and the too great importance placed by her on the delicacies of a strong sensibility and the graces of a polished manner Like half the rest of the world, if more than half there be that are clever and good, Marianne, with excellent abilities and an excellent disposition, was neither reasonable nor candid. She expected from other people the same opinions and feelings as her own, and she judged their motives by the immediate effect of their actions on herself. So she, up to this point, I think has been a little self-centered and not looking at the big picture. And Eleanor's drawing attention to that. Like she only, she 
judges people based on how they affect her, how much they agree with her, how much they are the same without thinking about anything else. Uh, I think that's a real danger too. in like all of us, like yeah. we're all looking for the person who's like the most compatible with us on the most superficial things. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't account for whether or not that person's going to actually be of character to deserve you. Right. So it's really important to look past some of the less important things and be able to see the person who, you know, will not actually ruin your life. We don't love a life ruiner. Like Willoughby did to Marianne. Great. So that brings us to our standbys. I think I'm going to change the first one for this chapter in particular because there's nothing funny in this chapter except the beginning with Mrs. Jennings. Yeah, I was like, I didn't write anything down. We're going to do just favorite quote. Ooh, okay. So this is after he's describing getting the letter in October. He says, Little did Mr. Willoughby imagine, I suppose, when his looks censured me for incivility and breaking up the party, that I was called away to the relief of one whom he had made poor and miserable. But had he known it, what would it have availed? Would he have been less gay or less happy in the smiles of your sister? No, he had already done that which no man who can feel for another would do. He had left the girl whose youth and innocence he had seduced in a situation of of utmost distress with no creditable home, no help, no friends, ignorant of his address. He had left her promising to return. He neither returned nor wrote nor relieved her. I just, the way that everything has led up to this point and bringing it back to that time and then saying like, what would it have done? Like Willoughby is just an asshole. He would have still done exactly the same as he did. He would still be doing the same with your sister. Like he sucks. And also I think it's well-written and I loved this whole chapter. I mean, it's so hard to pick a favorite part because even though every single part is a punch to the gut, still so beautiful. Some scholars clock this chapter because it's like dramatic for Jane Austen and also because Colonel Brandon is not a particularly eloquent narrator. Yeah. But I think it's perfect for those two reasons. One, it injects stakes into the book and shows you really just how much in danger these women were in his hands. And two, I think the fact that Brandon is not a good storyteller is so in line with his character and his incapacity to usually share how he feels. Like he's gotten not used to saying it out loud that I think this chapter is actually intentionally written to be a little jagged and sloppy and it's brilliant on Austin's part. Yeah. Wait, can I add, can I add one more? Yes. On that note, another favorite part is this part. He says, even now after the recollection of what I suffered, and then he like, he, he cuts himself off and he says, he could say no more and rising hastily walked for a few minutes about the room. Eleanor affected by his relation and still more by his distress could not speak. He saw her concern and coming to her, took her hand, pressed it and kissed it with grateful respect. A few minutes more of silent exertion enabled him to proceed with composure. I just, that, that really shows like what you're saying. He is trying his dang hardest. He is. All right. Questions moving forward. Well, now we know whomst, so I don't need to ask whomst. Yes, we don't need to say whomst anymore. <laughs> right as we put the merch out. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I want to know if we're going to confront Willoughby. I would love to see us confront Willoughby. I know that they've already dueled, but I want to see Marianne confront Willoughby. Dueling? Ugh. Ugh. Um, I want to see Eleanor confront Willoughby. And... I'm still I you know I guess I still got to I still got to know what happens with our boy Eddie and Lucy because we've compared the two situations now and, and they are very different absolutely Yes yes now now you 
you can say very surely that Edward is not nearly as bad He's a guy not as Willoughby. nearly as bad as Willoughby. I'm still annoyed at him, but I don't want to murder him. Oh my God, yeah. And he's like not, he's like trying really hard to not ruin lives where Willoughby is just like a destructive fire. He's a life ruiner. Yes. He ruins people's lives. Yes. <laughs> More mean girls. Yeah. All right. I, I can't believe I'm even saying this because I know the answer, but who wins the chapter? Colonel Brandon. Our boy. Our, boy. our king. Our bi king. Our bi king. Uh, 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 no words. I have nothing else to say about it. I love Colonel Brandon. I'm so glad to share that character with you. I can't wait for you to see him on screen too. Oh, me too. We're 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 gonna have a tough time with that audience. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Listeners, that concludes this juicy episode of Pod and Prejudice. Next time, we're back to the three chapter structure. So if you can read chapters 32 through 34 or chapters 10 through 12 of volume the second in your copy of uh, Sense and Sensibility for next episode. Until next time, though, stay proper. Find yourself a Colonel Brandon. Yes, do that for sure. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.